If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know this wonderful little statement, isn't it? But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Now about food, the food offered to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. Now the focus is on verse 6. And uh, there's a clear parallel, isn't there, between the section on the Father and the section on the Son. Now, both are clearly God. And I'll explain why earlier today. And the Father is the originator of all things and the goal of our existence. That's what that first part of the verse says, isn't it? The originator of all things and the goal. Okay. And the Son is the one through whom all things come and through whom we exist. In other words, the Son is in some sense subordinate to the Father in terms of function, isn't he? Let me tell you, that clearly doesn't upset the Son. He's not, you know, worried about this at all. He's quite open and uh, seems happy with it. You can tell that from John's Gospel. (laughs) In fact, we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that he delights to do God's will. Hebrews takes that praise from the Psalms and tells us Jesus loves to do God's will. Philippians 2 says he's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the Son of God in his eternal relationships. In his, sorry, in his eternal relationship to the Father. Now, of course, there's another wonderful example within the Godhead of equality but service, isn't there? And that example is the most self-effacing person of the Holy Trinity. That's probably stretching it a bit, but do you know who I mean? It's the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Scripture to be written. Why? So he can tell a story about himself? No. So he can point towards Jesus. And after the Son arrives, he takes all the things of the Son and refuses and makes them known. And in one sense, hardly refers to himself at all. And he's so only to say, is, is, you know, well, not only to say, but mostly to say, is to direct people to the Son. He speaks to the Son. He directs our prayers to the Father in the name of the Son. See, he loves to do his role serving the Son, that is serving the glory of the Son and pointing people to Him. But now let's turn to the human existence of Christ or of Jesus. So what I'm going to do is talk about that eternal relationship. Now let's look at Jesus the human. In His human existence, Jesus lived in many different relationships, just like we do, and in differently structured relationships, just like we do. For example, have a look at Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Luke 2, 51. I remember the first time that ever tweeted with me what this verse was saying. I thought it was astounding. Have a look at it. Here we're told how Jesus related to his parents. Now, let me make this very clear. Here we have someone who is essentially greater than Joseph and Mary. Would you agree with that? He's essentially greater than Joseph and Mary. He was the incarnate Son of God. However, he was in a lower position of authority in ordered relationships, wasn't he? He was a child of parents. So what did he do? Well, verse 51 tells us what he did. And the ESV catches it better than the translation I have. It says he was submissive to his parents. He was submissive to his parents. And the word used is the ordinary word used throughout the New Testament for submission by a person in a lower position of authority to a position in a, to a person in a 
stronger position of authority. It has nothing to do with one person being better than the other, or superior to the other. It is simply following God's ordering of relationships. And God's stated ordering of family relationships is what? Well, we know from the Old Testament, don't we? Two commandments. Honor your father and mother. And Jesus is a child. What should he do? He should honor his father and his mother. What would that issue mean for him? Submission to the greater submission to the lesser, if you like. Let's turn to another example. This time, let's look at Jesus talking about how to exercise rule. And Mark chapter 10 is the passage. So turn to Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. Those of you who are parents know this question. It's the one that's really loaded, because you know you're going to be asked for something that you don't want to necessarily give, but they sort of want the blank check. Right? Give me whatever I ask. We never say yes to it. Those of you who are not yet parents. Uh, he says, Wisely, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> they asked him, allow us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. In other words, they said, we're quite happy for you to have the top position, <laughs> but we'd like second and third. Okay? And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And not knowing what they're saying. They say, we are able. <laughs> Jesus said, all right, you will drink the cup that I drink. It's a cup of suffering. And I will be, you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. It's a baptism of suffering. But the sin of my right hand and my left is not mine to give. So the heart that deal with not the heart that wanted. <laughs> Instead, it is for those for whom it's been prepared. When the other ten decided they began to be indignant with James and John. Why? Because they wanted right and left positions, but someone had beaten them to it. And Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high position exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for me. <coughs> Friends, uh, here is someone in a greater, in a stronger position of authority, exercising leadership in relation to those in a weaker position of authority. You notice that? What does he do? He rebukes the disciples for thinking of leadership in pagan terms. And he puts the best interests of those he is willing over at the top of his agenda. And in order to leave, he serves. And he serves by giving his life as a ransom for them. So who's the slave in this equation? It's Jesus, isn't it? Because he's slave to their best interests. He's not lording it over. He's not commanding them and saying, you need to He's saying, I'm serving you. I'm giving, I have your best interests in mind. I'm going to adopt for those best interests. That's how I'm going to exercise my leadership. Friends, think about this in your own relationships. I want you to just think for a moment. Are you in any relationships where you have a stronger position of authority? For example, you might be in a strong position of authority in your work. Or you might be a parent, or a husband, or a pastor, or some sort of leadership role in the church. But if you are in a strong position of authority, then Jesus is a model for you in authority. Exercise authority like he did. That is, be a slave to the best interests of those over whom you exercise authority. Don't be a ruler like the pagans. 
For this is how you will honour the most important relationship you have on earth. If you want to know how to honour God, this most important relationship will be a slave like Jesus was to the best interests of those over whom you exercise authority. Be like your Lord Jesus. Rule like Jesus. Rule with compassion, mercy, justice, sacrifice, humility. Now think of those situations where you're in a weaker position of authority. For example, it might be in relation to your government, or in your workplace, or it might, you might be a child, or a wife, or a congregational member. How would you relate to those in stronger positions of authority? Well, you'd be like Jesus, wouldn't you? Submit yourself to authority. Might you need to his parents? as he did uh, in many other ways within the New Testament. Now, the critical thing is, do this, even if your authority is harsh and brutal. Now, that's tough. But if you read 1 Peter, you'll find that that's the uniform advice for Christians. So even when the authority is tough, submit to it. Because that's how you honour, that's the most important relationship you have, the relationship you have with your heavenly father. See, God gives all authority. So honour the authorities. And in honouring them, you <coughs> give honour to whom honour is due. This is what Jesus did. Be like your Lord Jesus. Read 1 Peter if you don't believe me. It's there. Now, friends, I want to close with a final admonition. I think I've done reasonably well in terms of time. I want us to go back where we started. Remember where we started? God is love. And love is exercised in relationships. So love like God. What would that look like? Well, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not conceited. Love doesn't act improperly. It's not selfish. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. <coughs> Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. It hears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for language, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be <coughs> an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, well, I put aside a child and childish things. Well, now we see indistinctly in Pastor Mirror. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. But then I will fully know as I am fully known. Now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of those is love. Why? Because it's what God is. God is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have uh, made us that you have made us relational beings. We thank you, Father, that in your own being you are relational. And that you are love. And that we see that, ex- that love exercised amongst the persons of the Trinity, amongst you, Father, and your Son, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you continue to forge us to love even as you do, even as your Son does, and even as your Spirit does. Please be at work in us that these things might be so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Brian.
But you know that point was a Jew. And a good Jew at that. Okay? Uh, all of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, you know, uh, educated the Pharisee, and the best Pharisaic educator of his day, he was a good Jew. Um, so that's the first thing you know about him. Second thing you know about him is that he was converted dramatically. Okay, now, um, I want you to notice, and then the second thing to tell you about Ephesians 1 is that Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14 in Greek is one sentence. There are no full stops, there are no breaks, it is just one long sentence. And so our English versions had mercy on us and put <laughs> full stops in it. Uh, they put some extra verbs in and so on, and they try and uh, give us some way of understanding it. Uh, so one long sentence, 3 to 14. Now, what I want you to have a look at is verses uh, 11 on. He says, We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we, who had already put our hope in the Messiah, might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is the unpayment of our inheritance, for the redemption of the possession of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now I want you to look very carefully. Who's, who do you think that you are in verse 13? You... Jews, you Gentiles, you Ephesians. Who is it? So, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Also, who's also referring to? That is, he seems to be referring back to someone else. We'll go back and have a look. Verse 12, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. Who are those who had already put our faith in the Messiah? Jews. I think Jews. Okay? So I think it's Jewish Christians, he says, and then he goes on to say, you Gentiles also believe. That makes sense? Yeah. All right. With that in mind, then when he says us, he probably means us Jewish Christians. And when he says you, he probably means you Gentile Christians or even all of us together. Okay? So with that in mind, now I'll go back to my notes. Let's, um, let's have a look at this passage. And uh, I want you to try and trace what is happening. So let's sort of go through it piece by piece. Um, I've now made about five pages of my notes. That's pretty good. Let us imagine for a moment that wherever you find us, it's referring to Jews who have become Christians. Now let's try and reread it. Look at verse 3. Paul starts out with, with praise of God the Father, of, uh, sorry, praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about Jewish Christians like himself being blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Now let me tell you, this is the language of Genesis. Paul is saying that in Jesus, God the Father has finally granted all the blessings promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3. Do you remember Genesis 12, 1-3? Abraham will be a blessing to the whole world. Okay, now what Paul is saying is that's now arrived. He has become that blessing. Then, or he has received that blessing. Then Paul goes on in verse 4 to talk about these same Jewish Christians being chosen by God the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is the language of such places as Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Jews are said to be chosen by God. Then Paul talks about these Jewish Christian inheritors of those promises being holy and blameless. That's the language of Exodus 19, verse 6, where Jews are said to be, do you remember the language? A holy nation. And it echoes 
Genesis 17, where Abraham is told to walk before God and be blameless. Genesis 17, verse 1. Now, I can go through the rest of this passage and show you the rich allusions there are to the Old Testament. They are so, so packed verses. Verses full of allusions to the Old Testament. And in using them, what Paul is doing is something like this. He is saying, in Jewish Christians, God has fulfilled his purposes for all Jews and even for all humanity. Jewish Christians are God's way of fulfilling his purposes spoken about in the Old Testament. And then, look at what Paul says about God's plan. Look down at verse 4. Paul tells us that God's plan began before the creation of the world. It is a plan in which Jews were special. Verse 10 tells us, tells us that it was a plan that was not only formed before the beginning of time, but it extends to the very end of time. And then look at verses 12 and 13. They tell us that this plan involves not just Jewish Christians. They were the first to hope in Christ. Jews first, but then also the Gentiles. It involves Gentiles as well. Now look at verses 13 and 14. We've already been told about the Father, haven't we, who's the source of all of these blessings. We've been told about the Son. We've been heard about the work of Christ and its effects. And verse 7 has told us that in Christ there is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, in verse 13, Paul just opens up the floodgate. He lifts the gate on it. And he says this, he acknowledges that the Gentiles also have access to God. They have heard the message of truth. They've heard the gospel of their salvation. They have believed. They've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, just like the Jews have. And you see that, don't you, in Acts? Do you remember how you have a sort of first Pentecost in Acts 2? where the Jews receive the Holy Spirit. And then you remember there's another one in chapters 10 and 11 where the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And do you remember what Peter says? He said, and it was just like us. Right? So Jews first, Gentiles next. So, friends, this and, and the Holy Spirit is the down payment of their joint inheritance. It's the thing they share together. And God says, you are both part of this. And it is all for what? Have a look at the text. It's all for God's glory. Friends, this passage, I think, when you look at it in this perspective, is so grand that it is very hard to summarize. It is just so grand. It speaks of God's great plan. A plan that involves every person of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It involves all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, and it's put in place by God the Father. It has its source in Him. It is through the Son. It is made accessible through the Gospel, and it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Our Trinitarian God is so awesome, isn't He? That He has done this from the beginning of time. He's been planning it for so long, and He's put it in effect in his son, planning, promising, redeeming, sealing, working toward this final goal, and the goal is clear to bring everything together under the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, it is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that is on that is on you here. And when he is glorified the Father himself will also be glorified. Friends, I wonder if you notice the intensity of relationships here. Here is the Father doing his work. Here is the Son doing his work. Here is the Spirit doing his work. All working at it together, united in their plan and united in their purpose. So friends, that wasn't really part of my main talk for tonight. But I wanted to share it with you because it arises out of what we did earlier on. Can you see now how the gospel and Trinity are so linked? 
And we're going to pick up Ephesians tomorrow as well. I'm going to give you a whole perspective on the book, which I think you might not have experienced before. Because Ephesians is a fantastic book, very trinitarian in its outlook. It's some of Paul's most sophisticated theologians. So, now, there's our little reversal of Ephesians 1. Now, let's go to the main question of this talk. It's about trinity and relationships. And uh, I want to start with the most critical thing. And to do this, uh, you need to open the Bibles at uh, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. So stay with me. I'm, I'm moving along reasonably quickly, so I think we'll make good time. So, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, and now I'm going to read verse 16. So, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 16. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. Friends, God is love. If you were to ask, what is the most defining characteristic of God? It is love. He is love. Everything we know about God springs from this. God the Father loves his Son. We know that because God tells us this in Mark 1. Do you remember? This is my beloved Son. That is, this is the one I love. And he tells us in Mark 9, in case we missed it in Mark 1. And we know this because Jesus tells us in passages such as John 3, verse 35, John 5, verse 20, and John 10, verse 17. So that's 335, 520, and 1017. And in the end, it is the love, it is this love for his Son that is the reason for the existence of the world, for history itself, for the incarnation, and for the redemption. You see, you are sitting here today because God loved his son. You sit in a created world because God loved his son. You are relational beings because God loved his son. Human history will forge the way that it's going because God loves his son. <coughs> you are redeemed and saved. Why? Because God loves his son. Friends, we so often put ourselves at the focus of God's activity, don't we? We say, God did this for me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for me. Well, yes, that is true. But friends, it's also not true. God's purposes didn't really, they did have you in mind. But you were the core of it. The core of it was his son. He loved his son. And everything he does is because he loves his son. We saw this in Ephesians 1, didn't we? God's purposes are tied up with whom? Where's it all heading? It has us in the picture, but where's it all going? It's going toward the summing up of everything under Christ. That's where God's going. Why? Because he loves his son. It's his desire for his son. All his creative activity, all created reality, bears fruit in God's desire for his son. And all the created reality bears fruit in the son respond back to the Father with love and obedience. Friends, that in turn results in the Father exalting the Son and bestowing upon him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Ephesians 2 if you're looking for it. Do you, do you remember what happens? Paul says that the Son becomes human being. 
in his obeying to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that's above every other name. And just a wonderful sort of image, isn't it? Yeah, God loves the Son, the Son says, I'm going to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God says, I'm going to exalt you above every other name. Uh, and so the loving Father means a loving Son, means a loving Father and Son. Hey, it is just a wonderful image. And it is a great truth. Friends, at the core of God's existence is relationships. And the thing that characterizes his relationships is love. And the love of the Father for the Son, which is directed toward the honor of the Son. The love of the Son for his Father, demonstrated in his loving and willing death for us, thereby offering us back to the Father. You see, we are God, the, the gift of Christ, of love, back to his Father. It, it's just a wonderful image. There's only one that I could find that Jesus actually says he loves his Father. But have a look at it. You might like to look at it in John chapter 14, verse 31. Most of the time, he talks about the Father's love for him. But have a look at John chapter 14, verse 31. I'll read from verse uh, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Do you notice what he's talking about? He is, he's talking about returning to his Father, isn't he? Therefore he's returning, he's talking about perhaps his coming death. Notice what he says in this context. I've told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer, because the ruler of the world is coming, and he has no power over me. On the contrary, I'm going away, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Just as the Father commanded me, so I do. So I love the Father, so I obey the Father. Now, friends, such love, you notice, always looks outside itself, doesn't it? Do you notice how the father's looking outside himself? You notice how the son's looking outside himself? It's not self-directed, it's outwardly directed. It's always directed toward the other person. It is always selfless, sacrificial, it's love. Friends, this is the love that has shaped us and formed us. And as we respond to that love and grace, we too become channels for them. So, this is the most critical thing I want to say today. God is love. And the core of his relationship with himself is love, and that is the core of his relationship with his world. So, for that critical thing, let's move on and uh, look with me at Genesis 1. So, but now on, if you're looking, you notice the heading that says relational beings. And under that, made in the image of God. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Now we are doing very well in terms of times, that's good to know. Let's read Genesis 1 verses um, 26 through to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule, the fish of the, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every creature that crawls on the earth. Now I want you to notice something. Did you notice the two-fold description of God in verse 26? That is, the duality of God is spoken of using a plural. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I don't think that's necessarily Trinitarian, like from the perspective of the New Testament we might think it is. 
But the spirit's been mentioned already, so at least it might be, how would you call it, binatarian or something. Um, here is God in this plurality, no matter what it is. Okay? Now look at verse 27. God has also spoken of, in singular, or oneness language, isn't he? So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. So here God is one. But let me stress something else. Being in the image of God seems to be, I think, related to ruling over creation under the rule of God. So I think that's what being in the image of God is about. It's about ruling as God rules. <coughs> ruling under the rule of God. Being God's rulers over God's created world. But it also means sharing his relationality, if you like. Look at verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. Here is our oneness, isn't it? Our matching God's oneness. Just as God's spoken of in the singular, so we're spoken of in the singular. But now look at the second half of verse 27. <coughs> he created them, male and female. This is our plurality, isn't it? Matching God's plurality. I think what's being said is we are relational beings. We are created relational uh, and God puts us in relational contexts. So in the very next chapter of Genesis, you find humans in relationship with a whole series of groups of identities. But with God, they're in relationship. They're in relationship with each other. They're in relationship with the animate world and even with the inanimate world. Friends, we are relational beings, created beings, created to relate. God has thrown us into relationships. As soon as he creates us, he says, here's some relationships you're in. One with me, one with each other, one with the animals, one with the, you know, the world itself. You're in all these relationships. And I need to stress this. You see, in many parts of the world today, we are retreating from relational life. Oh, except the digital relational life, which is not my and uh, we're going into our own individual lives. Uh, God didn't create us this way. See, God created us relational beings. People are meant to meet with each other, be related to each other, interact with each other. We were made to relate. We were made particularly to relate to Him. We were made to relate to each other, to relate to the animate creation and the inanimate creation. And all of these relationships, every relationship we find ourselves in, is to be submitted to the most primary relationship. That is our relationship with our Creator, with God Himself. So, let me stress the last point. We're relational beings. All of our relationships, every one of them, is to be submitted to the primary relationship of all. Our relationship with God, our Creator. Now let me show you what I mean. Take another look at Genesis 1. Look at what God says to the human beings in verse 28. God has just made them in his image. Now he tells them, go and rule over the world. In other words, be my representatives on earth, rule the world under my rule. In other words, all your relationships with the world are to be submitted to the primary relationship you had with me. You are to be like me. Rule like I rule. Now that's our primary relationship. Now, friends, I want you to notice something here. These verses 26 to 28 seem to indicate that there's some ordering within God's created world. Doesn't it? Now, Einstein to see it, I think. Uh, there is God, who's the creator of all. He clearly has a priority of order, doesn't he? <coughs> then, after him, there are humans. They clearly, they clearly have some sort of higher position of authority or order over the animate and inanimate world, don't they? They're, they're, they're told rule over it. So they're in a higher position of authority in some way. And as we move into Genesis 2, we find there are further subdivisions occur that are outlined by God. It's clear from Genesis 2 that man has some sort of priority and order over the woman. The man is created... Uh, the woman is created from the man. 
she's created to be a helper for him. And together they have some sort of priority over the animate creation, they to rule over it. They have some sort of priority over the inanimate creation, they to work it. That's God's created order. Now I want you to notice something else. You see, it's clear that there is a difference in both order and essence between God and humans. Think about it for a moment. God is greater than humans, isn't he? Right? So there's a difference in essence in one sense. He is God. He is independent from human beings. They are dependent upon him. In essence, they're entirely different beings, aren't they? He's a creator. They're the creature. However, humans are also greater than animals. That's clear as well in the text. They're of a different order as well, aren't they? They are, so humans are to subdue the world and work it. They're to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every creature that crawls over the earth. So they're of a different order again, aren't they? They're the, they're the workers in God's world and they rule over the animate and inanimate world. But the differences of order are there also between, um, sorry, the differences of order between the man and the earth must not allow that rule to rule out their essential equality presented in Genesis 1, you see, between man and woman. Does that make sense? So though I think in Genesis 2 and 3 there's a different ordering of the men and of man and woman, that is, they have different positions of authority, you must not let that overrule Genesis 1, which makes them equal before God. Does that make sense? Okay. Man and woman together are in the image of God. They have the same status before God. However, there are differences of order and authority between them. Friends, this is so throughout human relationships. Don't think it's just husband and wife thing. Right? And by the way, it is husband and wife in this passage. That's what it's about. It's about man and woman together in marriage. But it's true, true in all human relationships, in every part of their human existence, there are people who have stronger positions of authority and people who have weaker positions of authority, aren't there? Wherever you go in life, that is the case. That's true with men and women. It's true in society as a whole. So governments have stronger positions of authority than the people over whom they rule. Encounter a policeman on the way home or whatever who catches you for some infringement, you'll soon find out that they have a higher position of authority in society than you do. It's given to them by someone else, but nevertheless, there is an ordering, isn't there, of society. Parents have stronger positions of authority than children. Um, depending on what sort of background you come from, it's all very structured. My Singaporean daughter in law will tell me how the whole family tree is structured and who has the most authority, who's number one, number two, number three, and she can go through the whole lot with me. Um, it's very clear that there is an ordering within her family. Uh, and uh, masters have authority over slaves if slavery were still existed. Um, and church leaders in the New Testament have stronger positions of authority than ordinary church members. All of those things are true, aren't they? We, we don't debate them. That, that's just the way our humanity is ordered. Friends, I want you to hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. We are relational beings. God has placed us in relationship with other human beings. There are God-ordained orders within some of these relationships. And we will find that sometimes we have a stronger position of authority. I use the word stronger rather than higher. Stronger position of authority. And in some we have weaker positions of authority. Now, I have a weak position of authority in relation to my archbishop. However, I have a stronger position of authority in relation to my curate. Does that make sense? My assistant. Because that's the, they're just authority structures. That's what happens in society. Uh, having a weaker position of authority does not mean that I'm essentially inferior. So I am not inferior to the Archbishop of Melbourne. I don't think he would mind me saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we are equal to God. 
equally human, equally responsible, equal in status, equal in essence. And uh, it's just that God has ordered our relationships differently. And no matter where we are in the order, the most fundamental thing is how we act in the relationship and how we submit to the most primary of all relationships, our relationship with God. Does that make sense? Okay, so now let's get down to a bit more business. Living like Jesus in ordered relationships. Friends, in our relationships with in our relationships that God in Trinity helps us out of So I'm sorry it's taken so long to get there, but we, we finally got there. Let me explain by looking at two different passages. Now these first two passages I need to explain a little bit of background about. Both passages I'm going to look at with you speak about God in his eternal relationship with his Father. That is, God the Son, not Jesus the human being necessarily, but God the Son in his eternal relationship with his Father. Okay? Let's have a look at it. John chapter 5, 19 to 23. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you'll be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Anyone who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Now, let me say, that passage as a whole implies Jesus is equal with God, doesn't it? Okay, but the passage also implies that the Son is somehow subordinate to the Father. He, he you know, he does things at the Father's will, doesn't he? He's somewhat dependent on the Father's ordering of things. So, now let's, with that in mind, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So, 1 Corinthians 8, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 6. <coughs> 